Okay, okay, I hope you're all settling down. Do find a seat if you're having a chat with uh, somebody. Uh, while you're finding a seat again, uh, my name's John, in case you're new here and don't know me. I'm a member of this church. I've been here for about, uh, about a year and a half now, I think it is, isn't it? About a year and a half, yeah. Well, my last birthday was one of those round-numbered ones. You know what I mean? Uh, those special ones. I know you're thinking, what does he mean? Maybe 30, maybe 40. Well, I'll keep going. And because it was quite a big birthday, I got a quite expensive, rather indulgent present, something I've been wanting for a very long time, actually. Uh, and I've brought it here to show you this morning. This is a NASA Apollo Saturn V Lego kit. Uh, Saturn V is the... It's empty box, pretty well. That's the rocket that powered astronauts to the moon in the late 1960s and early 1970s. I've brought you here the finished article to show you. It took me a couple of days to put this together. And uh, here we go. Now, people who know me well know that space exploration in general and the Apollo moon missions in particular is an absolute passionate fascination of mine. In fact, if I ever appeared on the TV show Mastermind, with a possible exception of the Bible, uh, the Apollo program would probably be my specialist subject. I'm a bit fanatical about it, but I just, I just love this rocket. I love the shape of it, the size of it, the color scheme of it. I love everything about it. This, ladies and gentlemen, is a model of the tallest, most heavy and most powerful machine ever designed on Earth. At ignition and liftoff, the noise is absolutely ferocious and the ground literally shakes two miles away. Windows shatter three miles away. Five massive engines under the first stage, each of them burn three tons of propellant every second. Just 168 seconds after liftoff, all 1.9 million liters of kerosene and liquid oxygen are spent, achieving seven and a half million pounds of thrust, pushing 3,200 tons of hardware and fuel 40 miles up into the stratosphere. This thing goes from naught to 6,000 miles per hour in two and a half minutes. And that is just stage one. Whoops, today's easy. After stage one is jettisoned, five more engines break up. This went wrong. And uh, these two, these uh, five J2 engines on the bottom here, they, uh, they take liquid hydrogen stored at minus 252 degrees and liquid oxygen at minus 180 degrees, and they burn them seconds later at 2,200 degrees Celsius. Now, this stage of the rocket takes the astronauts into Earth orbit. And then the, the rocket accelerates even further. Sorry, it's a little bit messed up, isn't it? But uh, where one more J2 engine here takes uh, three probably quite exhilarated and nervous men beyond Earth's gravitational pull and onto the moon and back again. Amazing machine. In my opinion, this rocket, Saturn V, is the most awesome 
and wonderful machine ever built by man. And incidentally, the chief rocket scientist, a German-American called Werner von Braun, was a believer in Jesus. In 1966, three years before the first moon landing, he said this, the farther we probe into space, the greater my faith. And he said, just before he died, he asked that his headstone be engraved with Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Well, for the benefits of those who uh, weren't here last week, we've just started a series of talks on the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a very exciting thing. Because Acts describes the launch of the church, which it turns out was even more explosive, more impressive, and more world-changing than what that rocket achieved in 1969. See, Acts is one of the most exciting, exhilarating books in the Bible to read, if not the most. It tells you about what happened in the first two or three decades after Jesus died, rose again, and ascended to heaven. And it gives us uh, also a really important blueprint of what God always intended his church to be like. So the very first church, right at the beginning, just a few days, few weeks rather, after Jesus ascended, was just a gathering a motley gathering of ordinary people, just 120 of them, in fact. Um, And they owned no premises for the purposes of worship. Uh, They met in their homes, in fact. They had very little money to speak of. Uh, They held no positions of power or privilege in society. Pretty well everybody in authority at the time, both religious and secular, hated them. Uh, banned them from speaking in public, told lies about them, burned their books and beat up their leaders. And the earliest church endured relentless opposition and wave upon wave of persecution. But nothing stopped it growing, nothing. And eventually it prevailed. And Acts tells that story. What an amazing story. And I want King's Church, Darlington, to be as dynamic and as energetic and as as world-changing as the early church, don't you? Well, it's all in here. This is how it happens. Well, the standard media portrayal of the church in our day is of a, a pretty dull and tame institution that is in chronic decline. Isn't that right? And tragically, in the UK, you can find plenty of examples of churches that fit that depressing caricature. Almost always, in fact, because they discarded the Bible long ago as their ultimate authority. That's when church starts to go wrong. But globally, beyond the UK and Western Europe, the church is still rapidly expanding despite severe opposition. Just like the early church, and this is especially true in parts of Africa and Asia and uh, Latin America. The very first church in the Acts of the Apostles was not actually a perfect church. Far from it, as we'll see in the subsequent chapters in Acts. There were disagreements. There were disappointments. 
It was human. It made massive mistakes at times. But it prayed and it grew and it impacted its world like no other. People noticed it. People noticed the early church. It was alive. Now, Saturn V uh, was a little bit of earth reaching to the heavens. But in the Acts of the Apostles, we read of a time when heaven touched earth. It was a beautiful time. As we travel through Acts, we're going to learn how to be a church that becomes more and more like what God always intended it to be. God intended his church to be an unstoppable, countercultural force that is the hope of the world. But the church doesn't actually take off from the launch pad until chapter 2, and we'll learn a little bit about that next week. But just as a rocket needs the right people in place, as the countdown starts, it needs astronauts, obviously, it needs a mission control director, it needs a flight director, it needs all sorts of engineers. It needs the right people in place. God wants his church to have the right people in place as well. And that's what I'm going to be talking about this morning. So let's read this morning from Acts chapter 1. I'm going to read from verse 15, picking up from where we left off last week to the end of the chapter. It says this. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payments he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field, and there he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. So they called that field in their language Acheldama, that is field of blood. For, Peter said, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living amongst us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go to where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. Heavenly Father, as we come to look at your word this morning, we ask that you will, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be our teachers and teacher and show us, Lord, what you want to say to us through this passage of Scripture. Open our hearts, Lord. Open our minds. 
to see wonderful things in your word. Amen. Well, what I've just read to you divides pretty neatly, actually, into two sections. Uh, Verses 15 to 20 are all about Judas and what happened to him. And then verses 21 to 26 are about appointing the right leader to replace him. So here's the tragic situation that faced the very first Christians. Judas, one of the 12 that Jesus chose and appointed, has betrayed the Lord and then committed suicide. And Matthew says in his gospel, he hanged himself. Luke says here in Acts that he fell headlong in a field which naturally raises questions, which is it? And if you put the two reports together, it seems that the rope he was hanging from must have snapped whereupon his dead body fell to the ground. I read an article by a molecular geneticist, Dr. Georgia Purdom, and she explains it like this. Gruesome as it is, Judas's dead body hung in the hot sun of Jerusalem and the bacteria inside his body would have been actively breaking down tissues and cells, producing gas. The pressure created by the gas forces fluid out of the cells and tissues into the body cavities. The body becomes bloated as a result. In addition, tissue decomposition occurs, compromising the integrity of the skin. Judas's body, she says, was similar to an overinflated balloon. As soon as he hit the ground, due to the branch he hung on or the rope itself breaking, the skin easily broke and he burst open with his internal organs spilling out. Well, there's an edifying thought for you in case you start to wander off and start thinking about lunch. A more important question, perhaps, for us is this one Did Judas lose his salvation? Can I lose my salvation? Was Judas ever really a believer? Peter says in verse 17 here, it's very clear, he was one of our number. He shared in our ministry. Judas, think about this, he he sat down and ate with Jesus every day. He was an integral part of the traveling party. He listened daily to Jesus' amazing teaching. He witnessed extraordinary miracles. He was in the boat when Jesus walked on water and calmed the storm. He closed his eyes and bowed his head as Jesus prayed for him. He let Jesus wash his feet moments before leaving the room to betray him. Judas totally looked the part for three and a half years. But Judas hardened his heart And John 12, 26 says this, he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So all the time, Judas was numbered as a disciple. Three and a half years, as I said, he was stealing from Jesus right under everybody's nose. I don't think Judas was ever really born again. He went out with the 12, he went out with the 72 on mission. And in the name of Jesus, these groups proclaimed the kingdom of heaven. They healed the sick. They drove out demons. They came back rejoicing. This is amazing. Even for us, it works. And Judas was one of them. 
but he was never really part of them. He was never really one of them. Jesus talked about a day of judgment when people will plead with him, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? We've, did, we've done this. And Jesus will tell them plainly, I never knew you. I wonder if Jesus looked at Judas when he said those words. Well, when Judas finally saw his chance to hand Jesus over, the chief priests showed him 30 pieces of silver and his eyes lit up. That's all it took, a bit of money. Judas Iscariot loved money more than he loved Jesus, and he betrayed Jesus. Well, Peter is a central figure in this passage I just read. He denied Jesus around about the same time. And under pressure, both of them failed. Both of them regretted it bitterly. And we've all failed Jesus, haven't we, at times in our lives? I have, you have, we all have. We've all regretted it. We've all regretted letting the Lord down. But here's the difference between Judas and Peter. Peter broke down, repented, and returned. He brought all his failures, all his faithlessness, all his wretchedness to Jesus. And he told Jesus from his heart that he loved him. And he was forgiven and restored. Judas also broke down. But he never repented. And he never returned to Jesus. He brought all his failures, all his faithlessness, all his wretchedness, not to Jesus, but to the grave. And ultimately, the Bible says, to hell. Well, if you've drifted away from God, and I'm sure you haven't because you wouldn't be in this room if you had, but maybe someone one day will listen to this on the podcast and they know they've drifted way away from God. This is a matter of life and death. This is a matter of eternal life and eternal death. And I need to be totally straight with you here. If you have backslidden and wandered off your future can go one of two ways. And here's how Jesus said it in Matthew 7. He said, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. Only a few find it. So it's your choice. If you're on the highway to hell, turn off at the next exit. It's just ahead. Take the narrow road. Take the road that Jesus is on. Come to Christ. Come back to Christ today. Tell him you're sorry. He will forgive you. He will restore you. He will renew you. Don't walk away. Ever walk away like Judas did. And if you're hearing this today, it's not too late. But if you never repent, having wandered away from Jesus, then one day it will be. So Judas is gone, and the, those who are left have a decision to make. How do they decide what they're going to do next? Now, this is a really important moment for the very first church. How are they going to make this big decision? And the first thing to notice, I think, is what it says here about the group. Verse 14. 
It says they all join together constantly in prayer. Now, I've never been in a church yet that looks exactly like what the early church looked like in the Acts of the Apostles. But I've never been in a church, brothers and sisters, where I could say, we all join together, all of us join together constantly in prayer. And prayer is the difference between the best we can do and the best God can do. Prayer bridges the gap. We see God do amazing things in prayer. I remember uh, hearing J. John, the evangelist, talking about a friend of his who was in hospital, uh, really quite seriously ill in a, in a coma, quite unresponsive. And he went uh, to the hospital, he and his wife, Killy, and uh, they asked permission from the hospital authorities if they could pray for their friend, and their request was granted. And so they looked at her, all sorts of tubes and monitors around her, and they felt utterly helpless. Where do you start to pray for someone who really looks like they're finished? Where do you start? What do you pray? And Keely said to J. John, well, what about the Lord's Prayer? Well, that's a prayer they both knew, and they could say it together. So they, they stood either side, and each of them held one of her hands, and they began to pray slowly and deliberately, and with all the faith they had, their best prayer, the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And as soon as they said, your kingdom come, their friend suddenly sat bolt upright in her bed. She was discharged the next day. Prayer changes things. See, when you work, you work. But when you pray, God works. Yeah, when you work, you work. But when you pray, God works. And the early church, though, didn't just sit around and pray and then wait. What happens next? Peter takes the lead, it says here. And notice he doesn't say, right, everybody, listen up. I've been thinking about this Judah situation. And Jesus put me in charge. I'm in charge now. So here's what we're going to do. It's not what he says at all. He doesn't say that because the church is not a dictatorship. And nor does Peter say, okay, everybody, I'd like to propose a motion. I think we should replace Judas with uh, Fred. Uh, will anyone second that? Uh, thank you, Nathaniel, that's seconded. Let's have a vote. Now, those in favor, hands up those in favor. That's 35, thank you. Those uh, against... Uh, that's 20, uh, 25, 65, 30. Those abstentions, thank you very much. Motion carried. It's not, let's have a vote about this, because the church is not a dictatorship, but it's not a democracy either. So let's look what Peter does do in verse 16. He says, look, we need to understand this situation in the light of Scripture. That's where he starts. And in verse 20, he points out to everybody listening, this is what the Bible says. So Peter takes the lead here by calling everybody's attention to the Scriptures. 1,000 good ideas are no match for one God idea. 1,000 good ideas are no match for one God idea. And good leaders, godly leaders, ask the question, what does God say about this when they're in front of a, a question? We need to hear from the Lord. That's what godly leaders say. It's instinctive. That's our, 
starting point. Let's go back to the word of God. So pray for your leaders here at King's. Pray for them that they never lose sight of that. The Bible sets the agenda. Now, making decisions as a church is never about human wisdom. It's never about pleasing the crown. So never mind the opinion polls. Healthy, wholesome Christianity is first and last about living under the authority of Scripture. And that's what we learn here with what Peter does. So on to the second section now, if that's Judas covered, let's look on to the second section, verses 21 to 26. So they've devoted themselves to praying together. They've looked to God's word for direction. Now they have a sense of what they believe, what God wants as a successor for Judas. So in verses 21 and 22, they list the specific criteria they have outlined for the role. They want a man who has been associated with Jesus from the start of his ministry to the end, who is a first-hand eyewitness of the risen Christ, risen from the dead. And they come up with two really excellent candidates. But how do they go about choosing which of the two is the right one? Obviously, they draw lots. Uh, They pick straws. They toss a coin. They roll the dice. It's what you do in every church business meeting, isn't it? That's how we chose Michael here as our lead elder. Well, not really. It's not really how we do things at all. Admittedly, in verses 24 and 25, they do pray beforehand, but it still doesn't seem all that spiritual, does it really? Picking straws feels a bit random, honestly. Now, we need to understand that casting lots in the Old Testament was quite common for decision-making. You see quite a lot of it in there. And people believed, you see, that the outcome of drawing lots was determined and directed by God. Proverbs 16.33 says this, We may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. That seems right. But significantly, this is the very last time casting lots is mentioned in the Bible. Never happens again. Because in the next chapter, as we'll see next week, the Holy Spirit comes in power upon every believer. And from that moment on, the Holy Spirit lives within every believer. And he leads and guides and directs each heart. So you don't need to draw lots again. Well, they shortlist two men. Joseph Barsabbas, also called Justice, seems to have lots of names, and uh, Matthias. And the lot falls to Matthias. So he becomes one of the 12. And you know, we never hear about anything about either of them ever again. How did Barsabbas feel when he drew the short straw? Was there a bit of, why him, not me? Somebody I know well went for a job interview recently, and uh, she was unsuccessful for this job. In the end, she didn't want the job when she heard more about it at an interview, but it actually wasn't quite what she thought it would be, but she still felt disappointed. She felt low for a few days because somebody else was chosen. It's natural, isn't it? It's human. 
not being picked for a team. I was always last to be picked for the football team. Or losing an election. Being overlooked for a role in church that you'd love to do can really impact your self-confidence, your self-belief. Do you find yourself sometimes comparing who you are and what you've got with others? It can become obsessive. It can become self-destructive. How come he got that promotion and I didn't get it? How come I suffer with my health and she never seems to be ill? What's she got that I haven't? If only I had Brad Pitt's physique, you're all thinking, yeah. If only I had Rihanna's figure or Michael McIntyre's sense of humor or Emma Rajikanu's athletic ability, wow, or Stephen Fry's amazing intellect or Richard Branson's money. If only, if only, if I was like them. Somebody once asked Richard Branson, how did you become a millionaire? Do you want to know? Everyone wants to be a millionaire, don't they? So if you're taking notes, this is what he said. Start off as a billionaire and then go into the airline business. That's how you become a millionaire. See, I wonder if Richard Branson loses sleep comparing himself unfavorably with somebody who isn't lumbered with the major inconvenience of owning a transatlantic airline. Now, we live in an age where we have more opportunity, I think, for personal dissatisfaction than any other time in history. Facebook, Instagram, TikTok present us around the clock with pictures and videos of beautiful people with perfect children, eating amazing meals in exotic locations, living in ideal homes. Uh, and advertising is a, a strategy, really, for creating unhappiness to such a degree that we willingly part with shed loads of money to make us feel better again. Comparisons. The prayer of a discontented person is this, Lord, help me to have what I want. But a prayer of a contented person is, Lord, thank you that I want what I have. Are you content? in life, content with your lot. The Bible says godliness with contentment is great gain. And as I end, maybe the band wants to find their places back uh, behind me as we draw to a close. If you're a Christian this morning, you need to understand that God has chosen you. God has chosen you. You might say, hang about, I chose to be a Christian. I have free will. And it might seem that you chose him. And I wouldn't totally disagree that you have free will. I'd just say that God has more free will than you have. And I have. The Bible is clear when it says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And we love because he loved us first. God always takes the initiative. God chose you before you chose him. He chose you in Christ before time began. And being in Christ, being a Christian means this. You get everything that he has. 
You get his righteousness. You get his anointing of joy. You get his resurrection power in you. You get his love. You get his authority. You get his victory in your life. And when God chose you, it was his settled decision. It was made before you were born. It was made indeed before the universe was born. Chose you to be his. And he chose you because he loved you. And he still does. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of what it says about you and of what it says about us. And now as we look to respond to what you've said to us, move us, Lord, to make an appropriate response that is in sequence with our circumstances, what's in our hearts, what's in our minds. We want to serve you and love you, Lord, with all our hearts. Whatever you've chosen us to be, whatever you've chosen us to do, Lord, may we find ourselves contented and may we find ourselves living godly lives because your spirit is within us and you inspire us and put your blessing upon us and your anointing and your joy. Thank you, Lord.